Welcome back to Cunningham's Law Review, where our goal is to listen to the top artists and songs of the last 100 years, starting in 1920 and working our way forward. Every Monday, we review what we hear and share the history of popular music with you as we do. I'm Richie, and you're listening to Side A of our first episode featuring 1923's music. In today's episode, we'll be listening to and reviewing our first songs of 1923, featuring four talented women, each bringing their own voice to the blues. Today's episode features two new artists, Bessie Smith and Sophie Tucker. For some people, Bessie Smith, who was known then and by some still is as the Empress of the Blues, she'll need no introduction. And we have briefly touched on her work in our first Ethel Waters episode, since the two had worked together for the same show as vocal performers for an Atlanta show. We also spoke of Bessie Smith in our last episode, since she is more well known for her rendition of Aggravating Papa than Marion Harris. Harris's version, as we discussed last week, especially adds a racist final verse not present in the sheet music, and today we'll hear the song as more or less written by Roy Turk and J. Russell Robinson. Now, Bessie Smith is a very important figure in 1920s and 30s music, but her career would be cut tragically short by her early death at 43 in a car accident, as well as by the depression in film putting an end to vaudeville. Bessie Smith was born in Chattanooga, Tennessee in 1894 to a preacher's family, But Smith's mother, brother, and father would have all passed by the time she was nine. With her remaining brother, Andrew, Smith, like many of the artists that we've discussed so far, would try to make ends meet by performing on the street corner for change. Her second remaining brother, Clarence, became a performer in a troupe owned by Moses Brown and arranged an audition when the troupe returned to Chattanooga. Smith was hired to be a part of that troupe, but as so she wouldn't compete with Ma Rainey, who was already a part of the traveling group, Smith was hired as a background dancer for Rainey's act. Moreover, labels were reticent to hire Smith due to her brusque personality. They instead preferred the known quantity of Mamie Smith, who was considered to be a more smoothed-over and refined version. When Bessie Smith auditioned for Black Swan Records, a black-owned and operated record label, she apparently stopped singing to spit on the floor, so those hesitations may not have been completely off-handed. In spite of her rough edges, she quickly rose to prominence, becoming the most highly paid black performer. It's been much covered that she traveled during the height of her career in her own personal rail car, which had four bedrooms and a full kitchen. But what is less talked about is her bisexuality, which was a surprise to me. In fact, it's theorized that Smith's love for women interfered with her first marriage, but her second husband by common law didn't seem to mind. Smith's persona drove her to create music that would inspire generations to come and help to shape the blues sound. Today's first song, Downhearted Blues, was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 2006, following Smith's other two inducted songs, 1925's St. Louis Blues and 1928's Empty Bed Blues. Her sound would live on, and it continues to live on through us today as we listen together. Born in 1886 in Tulchin, Ukraine, and to our Ukrainian listeners, I apologize for what I've just done to your language, Sophie Kalish and later Tucker would go on to become a vaudeville and radio star. After immigrating to the Boston area to escape religious persecution, the Jewish family Kalish would move on to Hartford, Connecticut, where they opened a restaurant. There, Sophie would work as a waitress and perform between orders to start her career. Kalish was wed at only 17 and she had a baby with her husband early on. 
She would be divorced from him by the age of 19, and at that point she left the baby with her parents and moved to New York to become a star, taking with her only her husband's last name of Tucker. She would continue to send money back home to support her family and child as she earned it. By integrating humor into her act, mostly based around her physical appearance and banter with her pianist Ted Shapiro, Tucker would work her way up to performing on vaudeville and interacting with Mamie Smith and Ethel Waters, who would help her to integrate jazz into her repertoire. It was said that she was one of the first artists to introduce jazz to white audiences, but to me that's obviously false, considering all of the other artists that we've heard do it and the obvious fact that it would have been far more likely for audiences to have been introduced to jazz through sheet music, live performances elsewhere, including in New Orleans, for example, and of course records. Having said that, Tucker struck it big with her first hit in 1911 with Some of These Days, and I've added that onto the playlist for reference. For her performances of risque songs and her enduring career, she would become known as the last of the Red Hot Mamas, but the death of vaudeville would also hurt Tucker's career and performance. By the end of the 30s, Tucker would rebound with a radio show and hold leadership roles in artist labor unions. Music would never leave her life, and she would continue to perform until her death in 1966. Our remaining two artists, Marion Harris and Ethel Waters, have been discussed in previous episodes, and so we won't give their entire history here. However, here are some things that you should know about them. Marion Harris was one of the best-selling artists of the 1920s, and she's been called the Queen of the Blues, a title that we at Cunningham's feel is undeserved when compared to other blues artists of the same time period, especially her competitor for the title Queen of the Blues, Mamie Smith, who consistently outscores her objectively. Today we'll contain another assail against Harris's title from the Empress of the Blues, and so we'll see how well she compares directly to another regal challenger. Harris's work as a white jazz singer was well-liked at the time, but many of her performances have not aged well at all due to their affected accents that are painfully obvious, insulting subject matter, and generally vapid topics. We continue to hope for better from her, but are also continually disappointed with her offerings. In our first reviews of Harris, she earned a disappointing average of 12 points out of 25, and currently has the lowest scoring song of any we've reviewed with a 7. 1921 was a breakout year for Harris score-wise as she began to embrace her role as a jazz artist and celebrity, earning a career high of 19 with I'm a Jazz Vampire and earning an average score of 16.6. However, in 22, she disappointed with a version of Aggravatin' Papa that contained an added racist final verse for a score of 9. It will be interesting to hear Smith's version as it is more well-known and enduring and does not contain the added verse, lending itself more faithfully to Robinson and Turk's lyrics. Ethel Waters, born in 1896 in Chester, Pennsylvania, grew up in poverty among family who she never felt connected with. She had a rough childhood and said, quote, I never was a child. I never was cuddled or liked or understood by my family. She was married at the extraordinarily young age of 13, left the marriage before she was 17 to work as a maid in Philadelphia, and escaped her life of drudgery when she was discovered singing at a hotel party for friends there. In 1921, she would become the fifth black woman to make a record, and would be the highest paid black recording artist at the time for Black Swan Records, who ironically did not hire Bessie Smith because she was too rough. Ethel Waters would go on to have many hits, and in the early 50s, facing severe obesity, tax problems, and lack of career options, she found Billy Graham's church, and was born again as a rededicated Christian. This change in the direction of her life would lead her to a path of gospel music recognition and a renewed sense of purpose. 
So let's stop talking about the music and let's start listening. For those of you listening to the podcast through Spotify, there's a version of the episode available to you which includes all of the music as a part of the podcast, so you'll only have to press play once and everything including the music will play on its own. The episodes with built-in music are limited to Spotify, so if you're listening to this episode through a different service or on YouTube and still want to listen to this music, a playlist of what we're listening to today is on Spotify and is called Cunningham's Law Review 1923-1, and you don't need a paid account to access that playlist. You can also find a link to this episode on the Cunningham's Law Review subreddit at reddit.com slash r slash Cunningham's Law Review. We want to know what you think about our reviews and the music we're hearing, so make sure to join us on the subreddit, leave us an anchor voicemail, or reach out on Twitter at Cunning Review. That's all for side A of episode 1923-1. We'll see you for the reviews after the songs on side B. Welcome back to Cunningham's Law Review, episode 1923-1, where we're listening to the music of four of the early 20s most successful blues artists in Bessie Smith, Ethel Waters, Sophie Tucker, and Marion Harris. This is the B-side of the podcast, where we review each of the songs in today's music and talk more about the impact that these songs had. If you'd like to join the conversation, the Cunningham's Law subreddit will have a dedicated post for this episode at reddit.com slash r slash Cunningham's Law Review, and we'd love to hear from you through an anchor voicemail or on Twitter at Cunning Review. I'm Richie, your host, and I hope you enjoyed the music, or at least heard something new. Let's take the Micah system to Bessie Smith's offerings for 1923 first, as we start off this new year with music to review. As a reminder, the MICA system features five categories of one to five points each, mastery, innovation, catchiness, authenticity, and artistic statement. The lowest score is a five because some music is better than none, and the top score is a 25. For Bessie Smith's very first entry into Cunningham's Law Review, we're going to start with Downhearted Blues, which starts out with a solo piano introduction that leads into Bessie Smith's soulful and almost crooning rendition of the Downhearted Blues, a song that would sell 780,000 copies in its first six months and go on to hit multi-platinum sales of over 2 million. With such a simple piano backing, it's very simple to see that Smith carries the song by herself and at the same time defines what a sincere blues soundtrack can be like. To give you an idea of what it sounded like when this song was first recorded, I've added Alberta Hunter's 1922 version to today's playlist, and it can be summarized as a more jazzy and standard Marion Harris-esque version of the song, including a jazz arrangement instead of the simplicity of the piano. It's faster, and it seems less like someone singing their soul out to purify it or to try to find hope, and more of an attempt to be entertaining. And that's not a bad thing at all. But in hearing that version, it's clear why this one is the one that had an impact still felt today. For mastery, Bessie Smith has brought to bear her soul on the track, and if we judge the song's mastery only on her performance, then it would earn a 5. But with the simplicity of the piano backing the song, it earns a 4 for mastery. Innovation, however, is without a doubt a 5, and the willingness to play the piano in a more slow and deliberate manner is a good reason why the song sounds the way it does, on top of the obvious feeling present in Smith's voice, which is also presented uniquely. 
Catchiness is a four, since while it's surprising for a slow song, there is something haunting in the performance that does make me want to listen again, even after I've heard it for the review. And that's saying something, because for these reviews, I often listen to the song four or five times in a row, and then go back and listen a few more times a few days later. Authenticity is again a five, despite the fact that Smith did not write the song, a credit that would go to Alberta Hunter and Levy Austin. In spite of that, there's no question that we believe that Smith understands the song, and that she seems to transcend just performing it. And that's what we speak to in terms of authenticity. For artistic statement, despite the excellence of the performance and the significance of the song, it features little substance and fits into the standard mold of lovelorn songs that many of these uh, early 20s performers have focused on. And so it earns a 3 there for a total MICA score of 21 out of 25. This makes it the current highest scoring song in the Cunningham's Law Review Century series, and that's awesome, especially since this was Smith's first single. That is called Coming Out Swinging. Taint Nobody's Business If I Do is another great example of a blues song from Smith that sounds like it could be playing in a club from a much later time than the early 20s, and it surprises me how much of what we think of as a blues sound is reaching out to us from nearly a hundred years ago here. The piano here seems familiar in how it plays the stops along to emphasize Smith's poignant lyrics, which here feature a statement about how it's really nobody's business about how you run your life, and how we should all mind our own business a little bit more than we do, and there it earns a four for artistic statement. The song really finds its groove after the first third, when it gets into the main refrain, and it's a little less engaging at the beginning, earning a three for catchiness. Mastery here is a 4 for Smith's performance, but this is a bit closer to a 5 than in Downhearted Blues, since there's more going on with the piano both in terms of chord progression and also in the supporting expressions. Innovation is a 4 as well, and especially when we consider that Smith was bisexual in a time that was difficult for people of all walks, not even especially considering people of color, then we can certainly understand how the song speaks authentically to a wish for privacy, and earns a 4 there for a mica of 19. However, in another of the 20s multitude of songs about a love gone wrong causing the blues, in Baby Won't You Please Come Home, Smith begs a lover to return hopelessly for an authenticity and artistic statement score of 3. Smith here performs less authentically than in the other songs, but just as innovatively, playing with her voice in interesting ways that make the chorus more sympathetic and downtrodden for a 4. In this song, Smith gives a feeling almost as if it was more intended for performance for crowds, especially in light of the punchline of the song speaking to the one reason that Smith really wants her lover to return, because she needs money. The refrain does become a bit grating for a score of 2 in catchiness, and Mastery receives a 3 for a total score of 15. Moving on, Smith's version of Aggravate and Papa features a much bigger arrangement of musicians than in her other songs, which was interesting since we've only heard her play with the piano so far. The musicians mostly stay out of her way, however, and Smith herself adds some color to the lyrics here in an effective way that makes the song seem much more personal than in Harris's version. That version fell flat for many reasons, but one example is when Mary and Harris sang of her concern of her man cheating with a woman of, quote, high brown color which is an old-fashioned way to speak about light-skinned African-American women. The difference here is obvious, and Smith's version is better in all categories, with scores of 4-4-3-3-4 for a total of 18. Smith's soft but powerful voice is on full feature in Gulf Coast Blues, though, and it's very obvious where future blues artists would take their inspiration from. 
Honestly, it's not really fair that we know names like Billie Holiday so much better than we know Bessie Smith, considering the obvious influence that she had on them. Were Smith to have been recorded in the electronic era, I feel it's likely that she would be a household name much more than she is currently known now. But if that were the case, she might have also not been such a defining voice in the early developments, so it's a catch-22, and all we can do is listen and be thankful it played out at all. The song receives a four in mastery, innovation, and authenticity, with threes in the remaining categories for a total of 17. And with that, we can see that Smith's annual average for 1923 is an extraordinarily high 18.2, making her one of the best performing artists with multiple songs in the history of the show. It seems to me that her title of Empress of the Blues is well-deserved, and we vouch for it. Moving on to Ethel Waters' version of Georgia Blues, I'll have to be honest that I didn't care much for this song at all. It was a blues song more or less in name only, as Smith's versions have redefined what that means for 1923, and so this version not only seems outdated, but nonsensical, since Ethel Waters seems only as if she is singing happily about having the blues, being homesick, and receiving bad news repeatedly. Had we not just listened to Smith, there's a possibility that this would not be such a glaring problem, but as it is, the song is a three for innovation, two for authenticity, three for artistic statement, and a two for mastery and catchiness, owing mostly to Waters' strange accents and rasping singing around certain words that take away from the performance. Micah score total of 12. Oh, Marion Harris, why do you make me listen to crap when I know you're capable of better? This uh, song, Dirty Hands, Dirty Face, is 3 minutes and 39 seconds of waste of time schmaltz. The music is sweeping in a way that doesn't fit a simple example of the innocent love between a mother and son. It was not very surprising to find out that Al Jolson wrote this song, or was at least credited with it. And that was commonly a way to pay famous singers royalties that were otherwise not really deserved on songs, because it would help the sheet music to sell through the implied endorsement. For a saccharine song sung unconvincingly and unimportantly, Harris receives a 2 in all categories for a total score of 10. In Harris's song Carolina in the Morning, I have to stop and say this is your weekly reminder that Marion Harris is not from any of the places that she says she is unless she's speaking of New York City or Indiana. However, this week we're expected to believe that she thinks fondly of Carolina in the Morning and that she'd love to be walking around with her husband and father there. The song is however familiar and far more enduring than Harris's contributions to it as it was featured in about a jillion places from cartoons to commercials because its chorus is instantly recognizable and also very easy to parody. Originally it was part of a musical review, The Passing Show, which competed with Ziegfeld's Follies and overall it's strange that this one caught on as much as it did to me. Micah score 32323 for a total of 13. In Harris's last song, Who's Sorry Now?, she asked the uh, eponymous question, and honestly, I think it's me, because I'm getting really tired of hearing her dated and melancholic songs. This one especially being so slow that it approaches a lullaby, it earns a Micah score of twos across the board for a total of 10, making Harris's average for the year a disappointing 11. In Sophie Tucker's entrance into Cunningham's Law Review and our final reviewed song of the week, Tucker lets us know the drama of being a side chick who doesn't get enough attention. And I absolutely understand how Tucker could have bowled audiences over with body lyrics like these that make it clear that she was speaking about uh, certain risque things while referring only to a kiss on the cheek. That is, at least until she gives up the subterfuge at the end and complains that her beau brought along his family to their date the one time he did show up that week. 
It's funny, and it's an interesting topic to hear from the 20s on, that sometimes you have to put your foot down and tell your man to leave his wife if you really want to call him your man. And, barring the ethical considerations of the song, which isn't meant to be taken seriously, it's a good performance from Tucker, who receives a Micah score of 33343 for a total of 16 points. Now, there were two songs on the playlist that we won't be reviewing. Some of These Days by Sophie Tucker came out in 1911, and Alberta Lewis's song Downhearted Blues was the original, which came out in 1922. And that's all for today's episode as we kick off 1923 on our way through 97 more years of popular music. We'll be back next Monday with our second episode of 1923, featuring two titanic bands of the 20s King Oliver's Jazz Band, and the premiere of Jelly Roll Morton on Cunningham's Law Review. King Oliver's especially features a young man on the cornet who goes by the name of Louis Armstrong. Whether or not you agree with us, we want to know what you think, because Cunningham's Law states the best way to learn something on the internet isn't to ask a question, but to post the wrong answer somewhere. So make sure to find the Cunningham's Law subreddit, where we have a dedicated post for this episode at reddit.com slash r slash Cunningham's Law Review. We'd love to hear from you through an anchor voicemail, or on Twitter at Cunning Review. If you leave us an anchor voicemail that we end up using on the show, we'll review an album of your choice in a special episode, even if it's your own bands. If you like what we're doing here, leave us a review on your favorite podcasting service and follow the podcast everywhere you can. And if you don't like it, definitely don't mention that to anybody. Until next time, I've been your host, Richie, and you've been listening to Cunningham's Law Review. Our theme music is a difficult subject by The Insider, and nobody else works here. (laughs) 